you watching Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix? And the answer is either yes or not yet. <laughs> no, it, the answer is uh, it's actually even worse because it's not yet and it's I don't know what it is. Here's the thing. Thank you. Honestly, <laughs> truly from the bottom of my heart. Okay, so Blue Eye Samurai. I don't know why, but it's I keep seeing it being written up as French American and I'm sure sounds okay. believable to me, Great. but it's in animated TV show on Netflix. I believe it's eight episodes. And uh, it was created by Michael Green and Amber Noizumi. Forgive me if I said that wrong. They're a husband and wife team. Aww. Which is adorable because this is some of the best TV I've ever seen. And Ooh. honestly, what are you doing if you're not making amazing TV for Netflix, I guess? What's the point of marriage? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, famously, marriage is good for one thing and one thing only. And it is getting deals <laughs> on Netflix with your significant other. Here's the thing. When I'm saying something unhinged, I really appreciate that you will always back me up with the – that's what I always say. That's what I always say. Solidarity, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it's animated, but it is not just for adults. It is so intensely for adults. Oh, like, okay. Like they be – Spicy like, kiss. Like, there, not for kids. Like, this is like. There is spicy kissing, as I have heard it called, or like mm. naked, cuddle, aggressive cuddling, or like what? It, they, they're, they bone a lot. Wow. <laughs> okay. But there's, yeah, there's full frontal animated nudity. Actually, there's full frontal animated nudity, which is, yeah, whatever, neither here nor there. It's right. a couple of brushstrokes, really. Uh, except it's only for men. That we go below the belt. I was just about to ask if it was equal displaying for men and women, because typically when you see the full frontal nudity, it's just women. Oh, wait, no, that's not true. It's not only for men, but the only women are like not main character women. They're side character women. Interesting. Anyway, it is some of the best television I've ever seen, ever. Wow. And the fact that it's animated allows them to, like, really lean into the samurai genre. Like, you're getting uh -huh. the inhumanly perfect, you know, fights. Yeah. People are falling and landing on one hand upside down, balanced on a rock, and you're like, thank honestly, thank you. Right. Like, swords are fully cutting through trees in one Oh, yeah. Rules hoop. Uh -huh. Exactly. 100%. If you like D&D, if you write for TTRPGs even, this is so good. And when I tell you the main character is what young me needed and thought she was getting from Disney. Ooh, I'm so sold. I mean, you could suggest anything to me and I'd be willing to give it a try. But the, 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 you've gone the extra mile selling me on this and I'm excited. Maybe that's what I'll do this afternoon. I'll just like take it easy, chill on the couch and watch this and report back. I would recommend it. So it's about a master swords person mm -hmm. uh, during the Edo period of Japan, and they are on a mission of revenge. Okay. Okay. And there are – it's really cool. They they really play with gender in a lot of ways. The Our, our high femity femme character yeah. living in the Edo period, of course, not a lot of rights for women. Right. Uh, she really has to grapple with that in interesting ways. Uh, there's the sweetest boy character that you're gonna just absolutely fall in love with. His name is Ringo. Oh, 
I'm already sold. I'm like, I love Ringo. I don't know a thing about Ringo. <laughs> He's just like a big guy who, and actually, it tackles disability in a really interesting way too. Uh, Ringo was born uh, without either hand. And you kind mm. of see how he moves through the world. Yeah. Uh, and he's like the best. He's the hero for me. Um, and then the, the main character is a mixed race person in Edo, Japan. So it's bad. Yeah. That's a bad thing. Yeah. Anyway, I'm like rambling. I'm trying to figure out ways to sell it without actually saying anything because the that's best always part so of the hard. surprise is I'm mm-hmm. so sorry. <laughs> no, I, I'm so sold. Okay. Say the name one more time for everyone uh, and, and not just for me. It's called Blue Eye Samurai. Blue Eye Samurai. And it's on Netflix. Okay. And, oh, man. Oh, man. And the way I think I can be a sword fighter after watching Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do you have that, like, where you watch, like, Great British Bake Off, and I'm like, I can bake like that. I get so audacious. (laughs) Absolutely. And not only do I do that, I had this realization earlier this week. I think I was watching someone do... It was a dog grooming video, maybe. Anyway, it was it's very relaxing and satisfying to watch them groom giant dogs. What well, listen, we all <laughs> No, 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 no. I totally get it. I like to watch um watch repair videos on TikTok. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh-huh. So yeah. I totally get so it. It's exactly like that. So uh but anyway, I was watching one of those videos and having the thought of like, oh, I could be a dog groomer. And then I was like, oh, but I'm not. Like, I'm not going to. <laughs> no. um, and and not for like, a, oh, I wouldn't do that. But I had this this realization of um, I probably at this point in my life couldn't do it because I messed up my back so badly when I fell down the stairs years ago that I couldn't stand all day and groom dogs. And then I had this like bigger realization of there were so many things in my life that I would enjoy doing that I just won't like it's I, I I have fun did you cry? Yeah, like I have fun sitting and fantasizing about like I could be a dog groomer. I could be a professional knitter. I could, I don't know, whatever, just the hobbies you pick up of just imagining a brief world with, you know, that hobby and like, oh, I could do this, I could do that. And then just having this realization of there there were so many things I want to try and do and experiment with and experience and then there's just not enough time. Anyway, that was my big existential breakdown earlier this week. No, breaking up with dreams is really hard, even if it's like a brief dalliance. It's uh it's emotionally fraught. I don't think we give enough credit to that. We like there's kind of this idea of like be- people not achieving their dreams and mm-hmm. it being really sad and we acknowledge that. But also sometimes people just break up with their dream. They're like this isn't for me anymore. You were good when I was in my 20s, but you didn't treat me right. And now I have standards. Yes, <laughs> and I have to pay taxes. <laughs> yes, I I've been really going through that journey. Um of the idea of you're allowed to change your goals and your dreams and you're allowed to feel differently about things that used to serve you. So maybe mm-hmm. there's a thing in your life that used to serve you for the time that it served you and that time Isn't is- it the worst when it's a person? Yeah. So just having a lot of that lately. Wow. We started talking about a uh, fun animated show and now we're talking about uh, deep- existential topics. I will apologize for nothing. This is the Willing and Fable podcast. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. <laughs> I wish you guys could see Rowan's face right now. It's, <laughs> it is so perfectly the face of someone who's like, I'm not letting anyone, even my own friend, talk bad <laughs> about my own friend and our <laughs> show. <laughs> 
not on this podcast that is called Willing and Fable, by the way. It's the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology. Oh, and uh, casual and emotionally fraught conversation that makes the world so fascinating. (laughs) And each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. And occasionally wind down the curving, waving paths of tangents. And if you, dear listener, would like to support our show, please leave us a review. They always make our day. Ooh, leave us a review, Mm -hmm. right? Give us five stars. Or don't, but tell us why, you know? We want to hear from you. Or do. Or Or do you give us five stars. Or do you give us five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Look at me being presumptive. You will give us five stars. You know what? Speak it into existence. Manifest it. You will give us five stars. And we're already thanking you for that, for putting that wonderful energy into the universe that will definitely come back around to you. So it's really, it's benefiting everyone. I was going to say C's get degrees, but yours is great too. (laughs) And hey, you can also support us by supporting the people who support us. And you might be wondering who supports us. That's Greenleaf Geek uh, and our dear, dear friend Leah over there who makes beautiful custom dice, curates the best collection of affordable, accessible TTRPG tools and products and fun treats. Um, I was was just on the website because I don't like my wallet, I guess. Uh, the other night. <laughs> I genuinely can't open up her site because I know every time I do, I'm going to be buying dice before I close the tab. Okay, but here's the thing. This is for you in particular. She has such a beautiful collection of earrings right now <laughs> that are resin and a lot of them are iridescent. Some of them have little moons and stars. There's The jewelry collection is expanding and I truly like Grinch grinned when I saw this. Like this is specifically for Tracy. Yeah, it it is. I've seen her post about it and I've seen them on the website because everything Leah makes is stunning. And and I I really mean this with my whole heart. I mean, she thinks so long and hard about the creations she makes and she's so – creative and thoughtful that every time I see something, I'm like, yep, that tops that tops the last thing you thought of. Of course it does. That's amazing. I just think she is the best. So if you want dice, but also if you just want really beautiful jewelry, head over to greenleafgeek.com or check out Greenleaf Geek at Greenleaf Geek on all the social media. And when you do, make sure to use the coupon code FABLE at checkout. That's F-A-B-L-E for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Or mm. you can support our show by reaching out into the night sky and grabbing a fistful of stars in your hands like piles of glitter. But no matter what you do, we're just glad you're here. Okay. Don't say the answer to this. Mm-hmm. I want to know mm-hmm. who listeners think wrote that. so please for the love of all that is good and glittery Mm -hmm. weigh in Mm -hmm. (laughs) i also wanted to quickly flag that you were talking about falling down the stairs which is honestly so devastating and shitty but you (laughs) were you said you know this was years ago we were recording the podcast when that happened i know it's wild. <laughs> so 
If you've been here for a minute, you have been here since Tracy messed up her back. Oh, my God. Yeah, we were recording because we were recording. And I remember I fell down the stairs and I told you about it. And then not even a week later, you did the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that was. Oh, God. Ow. I can I can still feel the wind getting knocked out of me. That was the worst part, because when the wind got knocked out of me, I tried to yell for help and physically couldn't. (laughs) And that was really bad. Um, And then I got very stubborn for reasons about going to the doctor. And then uh, I finally got it looked at. And yeah, it turns out when you fall down the stairs, mostly on your back, you do damage your back. Would you like to examine those reasons why you didn't want to go to a doctor on our show? (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to outstubborn someone else who wasn't going to the doctor by refusing to go to the doctor until they did. I lost. <laughs> <laughs> but in a something, 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 doesn't everybody lose? <laughs> I couldn't think of what the actual wisdom was. No, I love this style of conversation for us where we skip the middle part. We just go with the opener and the closer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cut out the middle. Cut out the middle. Hey, no one needs it. Speaking of cutting out the middle, this week we're going to start with the story. I love it. It's been a minute since we've done that. Yeah, we really haven't done that in a while. Uh, And I think usually that's because we like to provide a little context. But we're starting with the story this week kind of by accident. Um, uh, Tracy and I worked on this episode together. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've both wanted to cover the Red String of Fate for a minute. And weirdly, over the last month or so, I would say – uh, people in random settings have asked me about the Red String of Fate. Really? Yeah. It's so, so wild. But I do love that people feel that they can come to me about mythology. Um, oh, absolutely. I hate when I can't deliver. And thus. <laughs> Does it feel like it's always, like, I feel like no matter what, my answer doesn't feel like it's enough. Like, unless I could give a professorial lecture, I feel like I haven't done my part as the the friend that you know that is into mythology. Tracy, why do you think we have this show? Tracy, that deep-seated fear gave us a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Every week, you're getting a professorial lecture from your dear, dear friends, Rowan and Tracy. So here we are. uh, And we both wanted to cover the Red String of Fate. And honestly, lately, I've been having such a good time with these shared episodes. Oh, yes. I, I love doing these shared episodes and getting to to research them has been really fun. This one, you specifically said that you've had a story bopping around in your head forever that you were excited to explore. Did you end up going with that or is it something totally new? <laughs> Y'all, if you could see my face. Um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. on this show, famously, famously, between Tracy and I actually – It's the episodes where you come in and you're like, I got this. I know what the story is. I know what I'm going to write that are an absolute nightmare to write for. And then it's the stories that I roll in and I'm like, what? What? What am I going to write? And then it's just easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl over here. I have been thinking about this and I think it all comes down to expectations. I think the easiest and most fun I've had writing stories are the ones where I'm like, I have two hours maximum to write this. That's it. You have to write your story. You don't have another option. You don't have another time slot. 
And then boom, 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 boom. You don't have, you don't have a chance to second guess yourself. You don't have a chance to you just power through with something. And then when you have these expectations or this idea of a story you really want to get across, I struggle so much more. Right. Yeah. This is that one. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so now that expectations are really high, now that mm-hmm. people know that I've been thinking about it. But to be fair, it's and creative humans of any kind will understand this. You know, when you're thinking about a project and you're mulling it over and you're kind of tooling it in your head mm-hmm. and then it's not concrete in any way. It's just all fun and games until you actually start doing it. And then there's mechanics and structure and things that need to happen. And you're like, oh, I was just having a grand old time with myself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's the thing of, oh, I was having a grand old time because I was focusing on the most impactful and fun parts of a broader story because in my head, the rest of the story context is just vaguely there. But when you're writing it out, you're like, oh, no, what was vaguely there in the back of my mind now needs to be very clearly written out for other people to see. And I don't have a good vision of what that is because I was focused on the parts that I was excited about. Like, And then it just turns into this whole thing of like, oh, I have to write a whole story, not just scenes. Oops. Oh, whoops. <laughs> so actually, interestingly, Chuck Palahniuk has really good advice about this. I went to mm-hmm. go see him live. It was one of the weirdest shows I've ever seen. Uh, but yeah, that makes, he makes said, sense. of course, one of the things that he does is write just the best sentences he possibly can. Not in any order. Just one after another. Just the best sentence. The best sentence. Like the most beautiful, possible, goodest, deliciousest sentence. Uh-huh. And then he puts them in order, whatever. He figures out what the order is and he puts them in order and then he just connects the sentences. And that is what I did. <laughs> I See, I love that. And that's funny because I didn't know that that was a writing advice that he had given, but that's one that I've been using for a long time of I'll write the pieces that feel the most accessible to me. And then after that, once I have all the parts that felt really achievable, although I'll go back and then put in kind of the connective tissue, the, the all the bits that need to fill out the story. I think I like to bop around and do that a bit too, especially when you and I are writing live. But this is one of those instances, like I do it naturally, but this is one of those instances where I had the moment and I went, I'm struggling with this. And I actually had to consciously open up my like writer toolbox. Yeah. And be like, what is here for me? Yeah. <laughs> I am struggling. Um, so now that I've told you all about my really hard time, why don't I read it for you? I'm excited for this. I think this is going to be, well, I'm going to predict that it's going to be beautiful and heartbreaking, but we'll see where we end up. Mm. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret and Wayne Braun lay together in their guest bedroom that had become their main bedroom. It was a late addition to the house, but it was the only one of the three that wasn't up a full flight of stairs, and the bathroom was only a few steps away. They'd used the second floor of the house until only recently, when Maggie took a turn, and it just wasn't worth all the stairs for a better mattress. Originally, she'd told her husband to take their bedroom, and she'd see him in the morning. But Wayne just shook his head and said, After sixty years of fighting over the covers, you think I'm going to give up now? Fat chance, old lady. And the pair laughed. Tonight, like hundreds of nights before, Maggie was lying in the crook of her husband's arm, and they were talking about all the nonsense of the day before they fell asleep. It was their habit to stay up too late talking, even after all these years. 
When asked, they both like to joke that they save up all their words each day just to make sleeping harder. Maggie said, Tell me a story about us. Which was also her custom when they both knew it was time to close their eyes and sleep. Wayne's chest rumbled softly with that happy sound that was neither laugh nor sigh. Which story about us? There was a long moment, and he began to wonder if she drifted off. And then, tell me all of them, she said. Alrighty, all of them it is. Now, <clears throat> hide and seek is a high art when you're a kid. The laws of nature demand that you either be a brilliant hider or a bold seeker, and as I was not particularly nimble and a bit large for my age, I fell into the second category, and I took it very seriously. On this particular day, the recess bell had rung, and the rest of the second grade class was sprinting back towards the school. But I knew that there was someone out there on the playground who was still hiding, and as the last appointed seeker, I simply could not let this slide. I'd be risking my reputation entirely. Besides, why hadn't they come back? Did they not know the game was over? Margaret Brown, I called, wandering the playground, searching high and low. Margaret Black, Margaret Red, Margaret Violet. I called the names of all the colors I could think of as I worked my way through all the usual hiding spots and then onto some unusual ones. Maggie Yellow. I didn't know how, but I could sense the anger rolling off my adversary, the tiny glare that was causing my keen hunter's senses to tingle and lead me to the correct place. And then, standing at the base of the biggest tree, still calling, I looked up to see you, Margaret Green, with your big blue eyes staring down at me. I found you, I called, and in a fit of boyish excitement began climbing the narrow pine branches to meet you, completely forgetting, of course, that you were meant to come down and follow me back inside the school. And you sighed and rolled your eyes, but I knew you were smiling a bit to yourself. I can always tell when you're secretly smiling, even when you don't want me to see. Even when you were too little to roll your eyes the way you do now. You said, you always find me, and swung down a few branches to meet me. And I remember one of the red ribbons was beginning to fall out of your hair and that you smelled like vanilla and pine sap. And that even then you looked like you could read my every thought with those baby blues. And that was the moment I knew I was in love with you. Then, some years later, I think we were juniors in high school maybe, it was... The night of the big game, East versus West, everyone was there. Even the kids that didn't give a rat's ass about football, which is why I finally showed up. <laughs> the track and field kids don't go to the football games unless they were the big ones, where someone would sneak in with some beers and all the cheerleaders were looking to get a date before the season ended. So, there I am, sitting in the stands and I don't see you anywhere. The cheer girls are all out on the sidelines doing their rah-rah and you're not with them. Which... I noticed immediately, because if you'll pardon me for saying so, getting to see you was the best part about going to a game. I checked the nurse's station, worried maybe you'd hurt yourself doing a cartwheel or something, what did I know? And I checked the snack stand, and I went back out to the parking lot where there was always a crowd. But in the end, you were huddled up under the bleachers, sitting down amongst the cigarette butts and pop bottles. I said, 
I found you, Maggie Green. And you blinked up at me with those blue eyes full of tears. You always find me. You sounded miserable, and God damn it, I hated Rick Malinato because I knew if you were there without his letterman jacket, he was somewhere else, kissing someone else. But I also said a quiet thanks to that grade-A, extra-large, muscle-bound idiot because, my God, I couldn't imagine a man who would leave you crying. I said to myself, thank you, Ricky boy, for not knowing what you had, because I will never, ever leave this girl, and I will never make her cry, and I will never kiss someone else if Maggie Green ever wants to kiss me. And we didn't kiss. Not yet. <laughs> we just sat and shared a cream soda down under those bleachers, and I was just so happy to be around you that I didn't tell you how much I hate cream soda until after we were married. The day of our wedding was the best day of my life. I remember my parents were running around like headless chickens and your mom was having some tizzy about your hair. And I think there was a problem with the cake at some point, but I don't know. I was the calmest I'd ever been. There was a spring in my step unlike anything I'd ever felt. And I certainly don't feel now. Got two shiny new knees between us, goddammit. That day, I felt like I hadn't seen you in an eternity. There was the stag night, and then the head and party, and then even at the rehearsal dinner, I felt like we got to say not but two words between us with all the handshaking and thanking we had to do. And You know, when the girls came down from helping you get ready, I just slipped away from the crowd and went to see you. I couldn't wait. I'm sorry. I, I just had this sinking suspicion that you were too good to be true. And if I didn't see you before the ceremony, I'd wake up from this perfect dream to find some stranger that wasn't Maggie Green meeting me at the altar. I know it was meant to be a secret which room you were in, superstition, but all those giggles while you ladies fussed over your hair were like an advertisement for happiness. I can remember hearing you all carrying on while the boys just stood out on the lawn drinking the one beer Uncle Chuck would let us have. <laughs> Calm the nerves, he said. So I snuck up the stairs of that old house, down the hall, and cracked open the door as slow as I could manage. And I'm so sorry I startled you. I didn't want any of the mothers to catch me. But you turned around in this frothy whirl with your veil flying and said, You found me. No, no, no. The groom can't see the bride before the wedding. It's bad luck. And you were shooing me out of the room. But I couldn't move from the doorway. I was just crying and smiling. Honey... You were so beautiful, I wouldn't have left that room for anything in the world. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure we started laughing at the same moment, didn't we? I was so choked up, and then my legs moved me forward, and my hands reached out, and I was holding you, and I think I barely got it out before we dissolved into a fit of giggles. I said, honey, I will always find you. Then I gave you a real kiss. Like I couldn't give you at the altar with all the parents watching. Now, this part. Well, you'll have to jump in if I get anything wrong, because I only know it from you telling me, really. It was January, not long after the holidays, I think. Jake was about two then, and Abigail was one? No, not quite. She wasn't even a year for another month yet. 
It was late. A wild storm had swept through, and it was like the wind was trying to compete with the ice to make for worse driving conditions. You couldn't see but a few feet in front of you, and the roads refroze after a melt, so it was like performing the ice capades trying to keep the car on the road. I should have slept at the office, you were right, or left early, Lord knows there was nothing so important that was worth this, but that was my wake-up call, I suppose. As you tell it, you waited until 9pm before you knew you couldn't wait, and you had to go out looking. You packed the kids up in the car. I still don't know how you managed it, honey. Wasn't Abigail teething at the time? She was always crying then, poor little girl. You drove around. To every hospital, then every police station, until you finally found me. My car was slammed into a tree in an embankment, and I was unconscious, knocked my head pretty good. They would have found me frozen to death under the snow come spring if you hadn't gone out looking. And I still don't know how you did it. <laughs> I don't remember a single thing until I was being carted into the ambulance. I swear, Maggie, you had... A glow behind you in those flashing lights as you were leaning over me, flashing blue, then red, then blue, then red, and I smiled up at you. At least, well, I hope I did with the state of my head that night, but I smiled my best I love you, and you said, I'll always find you. Wayne Braun stopped the story with a contented sigh and was satisfied to hear his wife's slow heartbeat feeling the tickle of her breath on his neck, just at the place he always knew to expect it. He'd originally hoped to grab a sip of water from the bedside, but if Maggie was asleep, he didn't want to risk waking her. Wayne lay in the darkness of that bedroom, listening to the sounds of their old house for a long time, before he heard her say, How will you find me when I'm gone? The same boyish smile he'd always had broke out across Wayne's face, now a bit softer and a bit sad. Margaret Green, I'll always find you. Even if you're Maggie Blue or Maggie Red in this life or in any other life, if you come back born halfway around the world, I will come and find you. If you come back as a Bird, I will come back as a tree just so I can hold you. If we're just left as food for the worms, you will feel me lying beside you and loving you in the dirt. As long as there is a single atom of me left in the universe, I will find you and I will love you. I'll always find you. And that is how the world found them, some days later, Wayne Braun, and the love of his life, and all other lives to come, Maggie Green. Maggie and Wayne might just be the cutest couple ever to exist, ever. <laughs> Uh, this was so sweet, and I honestly thought it was going to be more heartbreaking. It was... It wasn't heartbreaking. It was. It's just so unfortunate that I don't have the words to articulate the the thoughts that I have. Given this is a uh, audio medium, yes, but... <laughs> I, I feel that frequently. I felt that while writing this. <laughs> I mean, you did a great job. It, it, it's like it, it's very. Uh, there's a heartache to it, like this. 
this nostalgia or this longing for a thing that is going to potentially to be gone while you're still holding it in your hands. Like mm. looking at this thing that you cherish and knowing or imagining what not having it would look like. And then that the ache of that feeling while you're still simultaneously experiencing the big feeling of love and appreciation and happiness. Like this duality. The story captures that duality of like I have this this thing that is so perfect and so joyous with the ever-present idea of it might not always be or it's fragile. Right. It's temporary. There's something that I love so much that you can hear in the way older couples that are still very much in love tell stories. And I think in particular, I wanted to capture this like exact flavor of like older man Mm -hmm. where they like to tease their wife and they like to joke, but their wife is never the butt of the joke. Yes. And the wife is in on the joke. It's like rather than that kind of mockery, it's it's like – this this kind of shared laugh. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that there's something so important. It's it's part of a familect, which is a, a way of speaking that's developed among people who are close. You mm-hmm. see it in families, hence the name, where you have all these little phrases that mean nothing or right. totally different things to the outside world. But I think kind of this pattern of relationships where you repeat phrases and they have this meaning and this increased emotional significance is so important. Yeah. You see it in a you see it in friendships too, but I think particularly in romance, it's especially just it's just so delicious. Um and I imagined this story originally as a film, like I could picture it mm-hmm. cinematically, which made it particularly difficult to write. Yes. Uh so um the, a couple of inspirations for the story. Uh one was Big Fish which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. It's such a good movie. It's such a good movie. I haven't seen it in years and years and years. And The Notebook, which is not particularly one of my favorite movies, but, you know, has that really impactful mm-hmm. kind of story arc. So I, I guess, hate myself and watched the last scene of Big Fish and the last scene of The Notebook back to back. Ooh, Okay. That's a great way to cry if you need to get some tears going. Yes, when I tell you, I was absolutely devastated, um, which is great. And then I can already hear my father knowing <laughs> uh, there is this absolutely brutal song that my dad loves. And my mom and I won't let him play it because it makes us just sob. It's a country song. I think it's won a bunch of awards. It's called Where Have You Been? It was written by John Vesner and Don Henry and sung by Kathy Matea. And I believe that I think it was maybe John who knew an older couple that inspired the song. But basically, mm-hmm. it's the same kind of structure where, uh, you know, they meet – this couple meets when they're young and, and she says, where have you been? Like, where have you been all my life? Yeah. And then, you know, they go through their life and she she says, where have you been? And then there's this – this night where he doesn't come home and then he does and she she's crying and she says where have you been and then at the end mm. of the song they're in the hospital get together and they have alzheimer's and Ugh. don't she doesn't speak anymore and they 
wheel her wheel him into the same room apparently they were in different rooms and then as soon as he comes in she says where have you been and apparently that's based on the real story i'm gonna cry (laughs) i can't i can't it's it's so sad but i wanted to draw on those to tell this story for the red string of fate because the Red String of Fate has been so modernized and so adapted and is such a touchstone for people in romantic relationships. And mm-hmm. I wanted to write off before we even get into it, make an example of the Red String of Fate that is not string and is not mythological. It is just this tying together, this through line of people's lives and this romantic belief that you will mm-hmm. were meant to be, love someone and that you will continue to love them. Yeah. So, Tracy, what's the red string of fate? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to talk about the red, the red string of fate, also known as the red thread of fate. It's an East Asian belief that's rooted in Chinese mythology. Uh, it's typically described as a crimson string that encircles the finger of individuals who are fated to encounter each other in specific circumstances, and it signifies them as each other's one true love. Well, I mean, does it get any better than that? It's it's so. I mean, you see this all the time in so many different forms of media. As a visual medium, you'll see, especially if something's animated, a thread connecting. It's just this ubiquitous concept. And that was why I was excited to cover this episode because what's the real truth behind it? I didn't know. It It just – I'm sorry. I love fate. I love fate as a device. And we can talk about that more. But like it's specifically romance and then make, making it thread is just so visceral. And I would like for us to remember kind of as we go through this that the people who were telling these stories originally had a much more visceral relationship with weaving than we do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's very true. It was a part of their daily lives in a much bigger way than it Mm -hmm. is ours. So, of course. Of course. Yes. So, according to Chinese legend, the deity in charge of the Red Thread is believed to be Yue Xia Laoren which means old man under the moon. And it's often abbreviated to Yue Lao, which just means old man moon or old man or old moon. And he is the old lunar matchmaking god who is in charge of marriages. Okay. I'm I'm saying it because you said it to me and I, it just struck me like a lightning bolt. It's a man god. Um, it's uh-huh. a boy god in charge of romance. I... As part of the research, started to look into because I thought it was so interesting that he is a matchmaker god, specifically in charge of marriage. He's not necessarily a god of love and lust, and all. he's he has a book of people who are fated to be together, and he goes around and either tells them about it or ties strings to them. That is his his duty. And so I started looking up other gods in the same vein to see are they typically feminine, or are they typically masculine, and. They're typically pretty feminine, and they're typically goddesses of love and marriage. Like, you get the combination of if they're going to be a goddess of love, they're also a goddess of marriage Mm. or lust and marriage. And he is specifically not a god of lust, and he is also a man. It was just really interesting to see. Yeah. Lust be damned. If your name's written next to this other person in the book, you're marrying them. Well, and how interesting is that for storytelling purposes of, you know, maybe you're fated to someone, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a good relationship. Mm, mm, I choose not to believe that. <laughs> I say no. <laughs> I, I am fascinated by the idea of fate and especially the idea of people who are fated to be together. I love 
exploring the idea of you can't escape someone and what that means. Have you seen the Barbra Streisand movie on a clear day you can see forever? No, I, I've heard of it, oh, but I haven't seen it. Oh, honey, baby. I haven't seen that in so long. So if it doesn't hold up, I'm really sorry. I saw it when I was a kid, but it's exactly that. Oh, no, I love faded love or like faded torturing each other. Enemies to lovers. Mm-hmm. We know you love enemies mm-hmm. to lovers. I say you. When it's like done it's right. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so in the ancient Chinese version of this legend, the thread is tied around the ankles of both individuals, whereas in the Japanese tradition, it's typically secured from a man's thumb to a woman's pinky finger. However, in modern times, it's normal to see both of these cultures just having the thread tied around the fingers, typically the pinky finger Mm. of each person in the couple. The color red holds significant symbolism in Chinese culture, and it represents happiness and plays a prominent role in Chinese wedding ceremonies as well. The angle one, given like the modern ball and chain jokes in America, I can see especially why American audiences would prefer the pinky. There's also just something very pretty about the idea of a pinky tied to another pinky. It's very delicate. It's very – it feels tenuous Mm -hmm. and the idea of the string can bend and change and warp, but it'll never break. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see what you're going for. <laughs> so according to legend, the god of marriage, Yuelao, would carry around a book containing the names of all the individuals meant to be married to each other, and then he would go and tie the thread to your ankle or your finger, wherever he's putting it. Hold still. Hold still, yeah. He pins you down. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He's very he's very passive. He's a very chill guy. So when we say Chinese mythology and folklore, remember that we are talking about a wide geographical and temporal range spanning all of greater China and thousands of years of history. So there is no one Chinese mythology that fits into a neat little box. However, many religions and beliefs intertwine very closely with these myths and these stories over millennia, and we can see elements of Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism in these stories. Tracy, what is Taoism, Confucianism, <laughs> and Buddhism? I'm so glad you asked. Let's have a very quick and very high-level theology and religion crash course. I'm in. Taoism can be characterized as both a philosophy and a religion, and it emphasizes living in harmony with what is known as the Tao, or the natural way of the universe. While Confucianism takes it a step further and could be considered a tradition, philosophy, religion, theory of government, or way of life, Confucianism developed from a text called The Hundred Schools of Thought from the teachings of the philosopher Confucius around 500 BCE. Oh my god, I just flashed back to what, senior year of high school history and politics? See, I flashback because uh, when I went to college, I had to take a class that we had to read um, Taoist and Confucianist texts and then like write stuff about them. And I remember um, the, one of the last assignments, and I think it was specifically about Confucianism because Confucianism is a lot about you follow these ways of life and it's very regimented about like what you should and shouldn't do. Mm. And it, and it's very much about learning. A lot of them have to do with learning. And I remember just writing this thing in a, in a fit of frustration about like, yeah, this is all well and good when you can afford to spend your entire existence learning. But most people can't do that. And and just like this whole rant. Ah, uh, yes. The intersection um, of uh, socioeconomics mm-hmm. and religion. Yes. Well done, um, Tracy. <laughs> thank you. My teacher liked it. She gave me she gave me a full marks, which she was not one to do. But it just came from uh, my roommate at the time 
loved chit-chatting about these things and we just had a basically i wrote down the equivalent of a conversation she and i had one night and then got 100 percent of my assignment for it so thank you lisa for all the great thoughts cut to that got me an a in that class 2023 <laughs> yeah right <laughs> So that's what I think of when I think of these. But the last one we have to talk about is Mahayana Buddhism, which is the most popular tradition in China. And this generally sees the goal of becoming a Buddha through the Bodhisattva path as being available to all. And it sees that the state of the Arhat, or the one who has achieved nirvana, as being incomplete. Hmm. So even though you've reached nirvana, you haven't necessarily completed your your path, from what I understand. Hmm. Keep in mind that all of these schools of thought play a part in how these stories have been told over the centuries. Not all versions are the same or have the same details based on whatever was most important to the person writing it down or reading it out loud. So I wanted to explain a little bit more about the beings in the Chinese pantheon from a high-level perspective just to give you an idea of the types of gods and spirits that we see in these stories. Tracy, could you give me... Just a high-level perspective on uh-huh. the mm-hmm. gods and, and maybe the spirits in the Chinese pantheon so that I can have just a little bit of perspective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I actually um, – I think I can handle that. I bet you and I are insufferable at parties. <laughs> God, we make each other laugh and no one else, (laughs) and I love that. (laughs) Okay, so to start, there's the Jade Emperor, and the Jade Emperor was charged with running the three realms, heaven, hell, and the realm of the living, so kind of the head honcho. Then you have Tian, who can either be a sky deity by the name of Tian or just the name heaven Hmm. or the sky itself. Tian appeared in literature around 700 BCE or possibly earlier, depending on the dating of the book of documents known as Shujing. And then there's Nuwa or Nugua, and they are considered a mother goddess, and she was involved in the creation of humanity and repairing the pillars of heaven. Ooh. Right? Get ready for this. Nuwa is often described as half snake, half human, and is sometimes considered one of the three sovereigns, along with her brother slash husband, Fushi. Oh, my God. I had to include these because there's so much there and there wasn't time to dive into all of them, but I just a little taste, a little moose-bouche of how cool these these beings oh, are. No. Do I need to try to figure out what's, how all the Lamia equivalents from across the globe intersect ah that's so good it's so good there's just a it feels like it's right there to to be looked at and dissected (sighs) last but not least is yue lao the god of love and marriage often presented as an old man with long white hair and a long beard and he usually carries a staff in one hand and a book of love matches in the other and i have a picture here of a shrine to Yue Lao. Oh my gosh, he looks exactly like I thought. I must have seen him before. Okay. This is a this is a great picture. Um this is a great picture because it's a modern photograph where you can see this shrine. You said shrine and mm-hmm. also a parking lot mm-hmm. with traffic cones. And if that doesn't yeah. put mythology into perspective, I don't know what would. Um <laughs> okay, so on the right-hand side of the picture, truly we've got like a crosswalk, we've got blue and white markings on the pavement, we've got signage and uh, uh, ropes telling you where to go and and orange traffic cones. Mm -hmm. And then right in the middle on like a brick sidewalk, but 
the bricks are hexagons. Uh, there is a cement stand, uh, kind of like you see in, I don't know, like cities in America where you, they're stood up and then they have a tree inside them. But oh yeah, this yeah, has totally. a, a tall rock on one side that has some writing going down, and then on the opposite side, a bag, a red satchel like you'd put dice in, mm-hmm. uh, that has writing on it. <laughs> it does look like that. And then in the middle, there's a gentleman who is honestly so small in comparison to the bag. <laughs> the bag comes up above his waist. Yeah. And also the bag might be as big as him. I don't think the implication is that he is a tiny gnome-sized lad, but it is in this piece that is the scale. Um, That is very true. And he is a man with – it looks like he has his hair in a bun on top of his head and then has the cloth over it. I don't know what that fashion Mm -hmm. is called. Uh. And then he has the long gray beard, which is mustache and beard, but not sideburns. So it's not attached to his hair on the sides. It's a very grown-out goatee. Yes. And I think that that's important to acknowledge because I feel like it – it like modern hipster lumberjack dudes, it's all about the connection between the beard and the hair. And, mm-hmm. and God's – you got to disconnect the beard from the hair. <laughs> it's all about that disconnect from humanity, and that's really visually represented in the <laughs> lack of beard connection between chin and ear. Yeah. Yes, and you can see in the graying of his beard. <laughs> <laughs> the graying of his beard actually is symbolically relevant because he is the the god. He, he is very closely tied to the moon, and so the silver and the gray is often tied to him being in in a, a wash of silvery moonlight in descriptions. I am just filled with love for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love you too. It's so fun getting to geek out about these things. <laughs> I left peek behind the curtain as we love to do. Rowan got a lot of voice memos just thrown at her while I was researching. Oh, it was so good this week. Uh, and I truly do not know what the definition of a kimono is, like the garment where we start and stop, how we cross cultural lines. But for those like me who don't know the ins and outs, if you're picturing a kimono, it would be kind of in that vein of garb. Uh, It's a yellow robe, but with wide open sleeves. And then there's a red, it looks like maybe a sash with what I would Mm -hmm. consider to be kind of an apron, though it might go all the way around going down to his knees and he's happy he and he's on yes. his gnarled golden wooden staff in his book and he looks like he's chuffed to be here yeah he seems like a chill guy there there are a few famous stories of him the first one is the story of Yue Lao and a man known as Wei Gu one day Wei Gu was passing the city of Song Chen when he saw an old man leaning on his pack reading a book in the moonlight although other versions say that the old man was reading a book in a language that Wei Gu couldn't understand. Either way, amazed, Wei Gu asked what the old man was doing, and he answered that he was reading a book of marriage listings, and in his pack were red cords to tie the feet of couples. Seemingly perfectly cool with this, Wei Gu and the old man walked together to the marketplace, where they saw a blind old woman carrying a little girl in her arms. The old man told Wei Gu that that little girl would be his wife in the future. 
And Wei Gu thought this was either too strange or horrifying to believe, and so for some reason, he ordered his servant to stab the girl with his knife and kill her to avoid this fate. Do we think it was horrifying because of her social status? Yeah, some versions of the story say that he was so repulsed by the fact that this little girl was with this blind old woman. Mm -hmm. Some say that she was a beggar, but then later on you'll see that that doesn't necessarily always track with the other versions of who this girl is in the story. So for some reason, this was an unacceptable thing for Wei Gu to hear. Okay. So then 14 years goes by. Wang Tai, the governor of Shangzhou, gave Wei Gu his daughter's hand in marriage, and he admitted that he was having difficulty finding a suitable match of higher standing for his daughter, even though she was a beautiful and wealthy young woman. However, because she had trouble walking and had a large scar on the small of her back, no one wanted to marry her. And when Wei Gu asked what happened, he was told that she'd been stabbed by a man in the marketplace 14 years before. That is when Wei Gu realized the old man had been right. Apparently, they just get married. So they get married. And then we fast forward another 10 years and three children later. Imagine, I'm sorry to interrupt. Imagine the conversation. In my story, it was like, honey, I don't like cream soda. Actually, this guy was like, honey, um, you have a disability because I stabbed you because I didn't want to marry you. Absolutely. It's awful. This is a case of people who are fated to be together where it doesn't seem like it was for the benefit of both parties. So can you make me dinner and do you want to kiss? Like, this is all so mm-hmm. bad. Yeah, he doesn't come off great in this story. So we we fast forward another 10 years. They have three children together. And now Wegu looks for Yue Lao to find suitable matches for his two sons and his daughter. And Yue Lao refused to find a suitor for his children. And thus, none of his children would go on to find any marriages, and his line ended with him. Oh, get wrecked. Yeah, Yue Lao was not messing around. He saw what Wegu did, spurned his, I mean, really, really spurned his matchmaking, and then comes back 24 years later and is like, yeah, I know I stabbed a little girl when you told me I was going to marry her, but can you find our children happy marriages? But the the interesting detail there is that's putting economic ruin on this family. Like marriages mm-hmm. were very important business deals back then. That's yes, they were. Ladies and gentlemen, she's he's and they's. Do not stab your future wife. Don't do it. Yeah, please don't. Um, if we had one recommendation on this podcast, that would be it. That's our one. Well, for today's episode, if we had one message to get across to you. <laughs> So there's a slightly different and also perhaps slightly happier version of the story that goes like this. Walking home one night, a young boy sees an old man sitting under the moonlight by the side of the road. The man explains to the boy that the boy is fated to be with a young girl. He knows this because he sees the boy attached to his destined wife by a red thread. Yue Lao shows the boy the young girl that's fated to be his wife, and being young and having no interest in a wife, the young boy picks up a rock throws it at the girl, and runs away before anyone can stop him. Years go by, and the young boy becomes a young man, and thus his parents arrange a wedding for him. On his wedding night, his wife waits for him in their bedroom with a veil covering her face. Raising the veil, the man is surprised and pleased to find that his wife is beautiful. However, she wears an adornment on her eyebrow, though in some versions of the story she loses her eye or wears a particular hairstyle to cover her eyebrow. 
And he asks her why she wears the adornment, and she responds that when she was a young girl, a boy threw a rock at her and it struck her head, leaving a scar on her eyebrow. She self-consciously wears the adornment to cover it up, thus proving that the old man was correct and this was the woman the young boy was always fated to wed. Eyebrow scar doesn't feel dramatic enough to deserve a veil. It tells me that that is the sweeter uh version the the one that is perhaps maybe a bit sanitized Mm -hmm. oh yeah as opposed to the one where she has no eye yeah definitely yeah especially i imagine it's easier to lose an eye back when this story was originally told you know there's it's not like you're going to the er but then beauty was a really important thing too so maybe the eyebrow scar is devastating some versions of the story talk about how she would have been one of the great beauties of the village but she had a scar and yeah, it was a lot. Basically, these two versions of the story are really similar. It's just how how bad <laughs> does the woman have it and how bad does the man have it? Or how bad is he, I should say, really? Max bad. I want the story where he is the maximum bad. Because it's a story and we're telling people not to be bad. Yes, we are. But while going through all of this research, I noticed something that really caught my interest that I then fell down. A rabbit hole, which... And that's when I started receiving texts. (laughs) And that's when Rowan started receiving texts because the story does have to do with the rabbit god. And then I started laughing, thinking about falling down the rabbit hole. And then Rowan just got a a long audio message of me going over this. So, okay. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a spirit known as Tuer Shen. And I kept seeing descriptions for this being. And it was described as the Yue Lao of gay men. Hmm. And that really piqued my interest because what, huh? What does that mean? Yeah, what? Hmm? Well, it turns out Tuer Shen is a rabbit deity in charge of love and marriage between gay men. Specifically, it presents as a leveret or a baby rabbit, and his followers refer to him as Ta Ye or the master. His temple is in Taiwan and was once a mecca for thousands of gay men across the country. Wild. Isn't it? Wild. So his story goes roughly like this, according to what the master would not discuss, which was written by Yuan Mei during the Qing dynasty around 1788. In life, Tuer Shen was a human man named Hu Tianbao. He was a man who, against his will, fell madly in love with a government official, Hmm. a male government official. This was not good for Hu Tianbao, as he was afraid of how the other man would react if he knew the truth. Still, he couldn't keep away from his love and followed him everywhere. So one day, while waiting, or lurking, outside of the other man's home, Hu Tianbao caught a glimpse of his naked love inside, changing. However, this time the government official caught him spying and forced Hu to admit his feelings for the man. Once he admitted to being in love with the other man, he was sentenced to death. And after Hu died, he returned to the government official's dreams in the form of a rabbit. He told the other man that since his crime was one of love, that he was given guardianship over the love between men. After this, the official erected a shrine in Fujian in honor to worship Hu Tianbao, otherwise known as Tuer Shen. He was a lurker. Yeah, absolutely. Don't do that. He was deeply obsessed with this other man that he was in love with and essentially was following him around everywhere he went, outside of his house, peeping Tom, lurking, like very unhealthy, obsessive love. Okay. Do I think that he deserved to be killed for that? No. 
No, but how interesting that even in the late 1700s, there's a story coming out of China about a man who was in love with another man, killed for it, and then the gods were like, yeah, you actually weren't that bad, so we're going to make you into a, a deity. Because in the the Chinese pantheon, Shen are uh, spirits? Uh, yeah, uh, Shen, It it's like many pantheons. It's just not as widely discussed as like ancient Greece in America, mm-hmm. but – the pantheon has like head honcho deities and then it has spirits Mm -hmm. which also are deities they're just not like the big big deities and they're not necessarily a god right it could be a spirit think of like we've talked about this with the um with vodun religions Mm -hmm. or with um even in our episode on kitsune the idea of different spirits in japanese mythology how they're the word ghost isn't quite right, right for for yokai, but it's it's also not wrong. And and this it, to me, Shen seems to fall in in line with that of it's it's a deity, but it's not necessarily a god. Yeah, we need a word for what is between spirit and god, but that is not demigod because it is not part mortal. Mm-hmm. And we just don't quite have one in English, unless we do, and we just don't know it. Uh, In which case, please write to us and let us know. We would love to learn. Yeah, please. It's would be amazing. It's interesting. So, one, I think that this breaks down the apparent misconception that like you could not be queer at the time mm-hmm. in China. If there's a story about it, people were doing it. Which is mm-hmm. listen, if there are no stories, people are still doing it. But this is a really good point there. But I wonder if he behaves the way that he does in the story to associate gayness with perversion. I had the same thought because I could see it going one of two ways. Either it's to associate gayness with perversion, with with being crimes, hunted, with crimes, with a potential attack, or it's an exploration of obsession. And it's something that Again, I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast. We've absolutely talked about it off the podcast, how in ancient Greece there were different words for different types of love. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, agape being different. Like the, the idea of being madly sexually aroused by someone is a different type of love than having this genuine respect and belief for someone, which is a different kind of – you know, all these different kinds of love. And so I wonder if part of it is the, the story could also be, hey, this this man was so repressed. He had no outlet for this. And despite everything, trying everything to the contrary, he still had this obsessive, deep love for this other man that came out in unhealthy ways. Do I think that's what the story is trying to tell? Not necessarily, but I think it's a really interesting way to interpret uh, another way or reasoning for why he is behaving the way he is. It makes sense, especially because when you try to bury things, often they come out bigger and badder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... The thing that I always try to remember when we talk about stories in this way, it's, you know, it's very possible that the first tellings of this story did not have an intention either way. There was not a person telling the story going, I want to associate this with perversion or I want to associate it with obsessive love. They may have just told the story and it was inspired by life, their feelings or an experience or whatever, and it's just in there. Because humans tell stories about humanity. 
And there's so much cultural context that we just don't have. Right. That would have made things unspoken that now would need to be clearly stated because we just don't have that cultural context. The Kim Kardashian effect, as we like to say. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. What was really interesting was learning that there was a cult to Hu Tianbao in the 1700s that was of particular concern to Qing dynasty official Zhu Gui, who wrote in his Prohibition of Licentious Cults that, quote, the image is of two men embracing one another. The face of one is somewhat hoary with age, the other tender and pale. Their temple is commonly called the small official temple. All those debauched and shameless rascals who on seeing youths or young men desire to have illicit intercourse with them pray for assistance from the plaster idol. Then they make plans to entice and obtain the objects of their desire. This is known as the secret assistance of Hu Tianbao. Afterwards, they smear the idol's mouth with pork intestine and sugar in thanks. End quote. I know this isn't the point of this quote, but hoary with age, it's talking about frost and that that person had white hair. Oh, my God. Beautiful writing. Okay. But it's back beautiful to- writing. You're like, hey, buddy, be less homophobic, but keep up the great syntax. Right, right. Use your forces for good. I love that uh, this guy had to call it out of like, okay, because how, how much does this sound like what we hear in today's society? This was written in the 1700s, and it sounds like what you would hear on, let's say, I don't know, Fox News of- there's a temple and they go there and they pray to their false idol that he's going to help them manipulate other men into having sex with them. And then they go and they do gross stuff like smear pork intestines on the statue and thanks because they're all barbaric and all they, all they care about is sex and, and being perverse. Like it just has that energy to it that you would see today. People have always been the same. Mm-hmm. It's, but you're correct. Framing it as Fox News is such a brilliant choice because I can imagine this person sitting in the little Fox News window saying exactly this. And I just want to look at this person and be like, you think about this more than probably most of the men who go to this temple Probably do. because he's closeted. Yeah. Every time. Every time I'm like, it's okay. You could just go have sex with a man. Like, if you think queerness is a choice, it's because you're choosing not to be queer. I'm it's sorry. You're choosing not to. <laughs> I I think I talked about this. I went and saw a comedy show that was not my choice to go to, okay. and it was so aggressively the quote unquote boomer humor of like, I hate my wife. Um, it's impossible to have sex with a woman because you can't. There's no way to please them, <gasps> and no. also their vaginas look weird. Oh no. Of course. Oh, fully that. I mean, he's talking about, he had one bit about, you know, he has no idea how to please a woman. This is like a 45, 50, between 45 and 55 year old man. No idea how to please a woman. Ha ha. It's funny because you can't please women. Um, Also, ha ha. Vaginas are funny looking. Mm, Don't know what the joke really was there. Have sex with men. And I left the show and I was like, buddy, you can just kiss boys. <laughs> That's the best way to say it. I was also going to say if it's vaginas that are the problem, you could be with a woman who doesn't have one. You don't. Yes. The whole thing was, again, it's that classic thing that you see more and more and more in this style of comedy that comes out where it's like, oh, you only care about the respect of men. Oh, the yeah. The opinions of mm. and the respect of men. You only want to please men. You're only here for men. Men who don't like women, they just uh-huh. like men. The other thing, when men talk about not being able to please women in that joking way, I always 
like want to throw out there and, and no one has ever taken me seriously, but I'm so serious. Like there are professionals that could teach you how to do this. Hire a sex worker. Be like, hey, my guy or my gal, how do I do this better? If you exchange currency for this information, you can have it. Here's the thing. <laughs> and, and not to like really dive down the rabbit hole of it, but one, I love that suggestion. I think that is delightful. Thank you. And what it reveals when you say that to someone of like, well, you could you could learn it is they don't want to learn because they don't have to learn because there is a baseline and this is such a TikTok-ism, but like there's the baseline level of unhappiness that people have accepted. And it's like, oh. well, if you're okay with this baseline level of unhappiness, if you're okay with I can't really please you, in what world, if this if this person genuinely doesn't have a, a level of respect and care for you, then what would be their incentive? What is it? Acceptable level of permanent unhappiness? Yes. I think that's, that's it. what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, also, even less intense than my apparently brilliant plan as I've decreed it, why don't you just <laughs> ask your wife? Why don't you just ask her what she wants? Hey, baby, do you like this? No? Let me just do anything else. <laughs> I I'm so I so agree with you. I'm like, yeah, just ask. But keep in mind, we're talking about people who are at a point in their, let's call it learning journey. Let's be optimistic. <laughs> where <laughs> they haven't even recognized that there's a problem, let alone that the solution is genuinely as simple as ask question, don't get defensive when given an answer. Or like even get a little defensive, just keep your mouth shut. That's fine. You can have a meltdown in your head. Oh, I... Uh, can they? Oh, you know? are you having big feelings? Do you want us to take a break if you're feeling emotional? If you're feeling – okay. One last thing I'm going to touch on before we get back to our main <laughs> topic because this is something that Rowan and I both are such like evangelists of. Hey, everyone, anger is an emotion. Oh. So when a man is getting mm. angry, just remind them that they're being emotional. That's the best lie that they've ever convinced us all of. Oh, my God. By the way, I've employed maybe since – you taught yeah? me. Yeah, except the problem is it's so funny that I, I've i used it. I've told the story to my friends because I talk yeah. about you all the time. I'm like, hey. And obviously all my friends are your friends. So I told yeah, the story. Yeah. But then I have since said, maybe. And maybe friends are like, are you using maybe on me? Like, no, actually, in this case, I am just saying maybe. Because <laughs> originally it started, I mean, I'm so sorry, because it started as a fun inside joke between my friend and her boyfriend. And then I just took it and was like, weaponizing this. It's too funny. <laughs> People think you're the nice one. People think you're the nice one. And they're correct, but they're not as correct as they think they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do people think I'm the nice one? Hey, everyone, write in. <laughs> oh, well, they might not because you're a brunette. I know. I'm being so serious right now. No, this is – okay, we're off track, but whatever, because this is an important topic to us because I've been – you know, dark hair my whole life. That's my thing. Rowan has a, a story that I find fascinating from college when she briefly for a play had to have her hair red. Oh. And suddenly people treated her so differently. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, you were just told constantly that you're so fiery. Yeah, I went from being bleach blonde, which was also not correct, but fine. Uh, right. Where people were like, oh, you're so icy. You're so cold. You're so aloof. To immediately, like within the 24-hour period of it being dyed, same people. Oh, you're so fiery. Look at you. My confidence spark. Like, what the hell? 
It's all made up. So, yeah. So people might not think I'm the nice one because I guess is the brunette one not the nice one? Well, you I know. Feel like the brunette one is the nice one. I feel like you always see the brown hair girl and you're like, well, her, her oh. main quality is, is just nice. Oh, right. Her only quality is nice. Her I- only quality, it, if, although if I had glasses on, then my only quality could be smart. No, your only quality could be uh, insecure. Ooh. I, it does depend on the role that's being played in the story. Right. I, that's what I was going to say. I feel like the, it depends on the story because if the story is that I will come along and tell the woman that she is good and therefore she will be good, like worthy, it, mm-hmm. the thing is the blonde girl's the mean one and the brunette mm-hmm. is the one who was nice and always so pretty and we just couldn't tell. Um, but if it's a story where like women are the bad, like men mm-hmm. are trying to save the day or whatever and women are evil, I feel like there's that like brunette like siren and and the blonde's getting like saved. See, I, I think it, I think of it as if you have a few female villains, the brunette's the one that at the last second is going to turn and be your ally. Oh, I was thinking you were going to say turn and be evil. Like she seemed like good no. all the time. No, think – Think um, the first one that just weirdly that came to mind, if, if you remember the movie Ever After. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. So Drew Barrymore is Cinderella. Yeah. That's the movie. And she's got two stepsisters. <gasps> right. Uh... The brunette and the blonde. And the blonde doubles down on being evil. And the brunette by the end is like her friend and gets out of trouble and like helps save the day and whatever. All I'm saying is girls are like Barbies. You cannot have – Two girls that have the same physical quality in one movie. You can only have one blonde. You can only have one brunette. You can only have one of every single possible characteristic, short, tall, whatever. Mm -hmm. Or else the girls will fight and how will we get the movie made? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's really bad because people are just really bad at differentiating. So if you got, if you have two, vaguely pretty white women with brown hair in a movie gotta take one of them out because no one's gonna know that they're different characters Uh, you know i famously always say that all brunette white women are the same woman (laughs) (laughs) they're all just tracy i'm walking around calling people tracy and it works with jamie she's used to it she's like okay fine Uh it's a twin uh thing and then other people are like who's tracy No, you're doing the the same approach as my nephew, which is to walk up to any woman with brown hair and just assume it's your mom and then get personally offended when you're wrong and it's not your mom. I remember the horror of going up to someone in the grocery store and thinking it's your mom and then it's not your mom. I know. I The horror – and it's so funny because as an adult now looking at kids doing that, it's only cute and you want them to not feel bad at all about doing that because it's just cute. And as a kid, you're like, this is quite literally – and I'm not exaggerating, the worst thing I've ever done in my three years on this planet. <laughs> oh, but if they weren't horrified and traumatized, it wouldn't be so cute. <laughs> All right. So back to mythology. So we're getting into the part that I had to call you and leave you a, I think, three, four minute long audio message yeah. about because I was so I'm so excited. My favorite part is you said, I don't think this can be on the podcast because I don't have a good reason yet. And then by the end of the call, you were like, no, wait, I found it. (laughs) Well, yeah, because I had only seen him listed as the UA Lao of gay men once. And I was like, okay, funny, but I don't know that that's enough of a connection. Is he really this? Is that just a headline thing? Like, let's look into why this was being said. And then I found it multiple places. And then I found it consistently that people are like, 
in articles about Tuer Shen, it would link to articles about Yue Lao saying like, for the heterosexual couples, typically Yue Lao. So it was like, there was a clear connection of like, if you're a man who wants a woman or a woman who wants a man, Yue Lao. Anyone else? If if you're in the LGBTQ plus community, Tuer Shen is much more likely to be I think there's a, a chance that at the time it was only men and women and men who love men because women's desire was not a factor. Like there – I don't think I, – well, I mean – I found no evidence of any respect or thought towards women's sexuality. Yeah. There is no equivalent of Tuer Shen for lesbian women. Yeah. But in modern day society – you'll see a lot of broader LGBTQ acceptance with Tuer Shen. But before I get to that, let's talk about this quote from Wikipedia that blew my mind and is the reason I had to bring Tuer Shen into this conversation. Quote, The story of Tuer Shen may be an attempt to mythologize a system of male marriages in Fujian attested to by the scholar and bureaucrat Shen Defu and the 17th century writer Li Yu. The older man in the union would play the masculine role as Qi Xiong, or adoptive older brother, paying a bride price to the family of the younger man, it was said virgins fetched higher prices, who became the Qi Di, or adoptive younger brother. Li Yu describes the ceremony, saying, quote, They do not skip the three cups of tea or the six wedding rituals. It is just like a proper marriage with a formal wedding, end quote. The younger brother then moved into the household of the older brother, where he would be completely dependent on him, be treated as a son-in-law by the older brother's parents, and possibly even help raise children adopted by the older brother. These marriages could last as long as 20 years before both men were expected to marry women in order to procreate, end quote. What? Is this not so similar to the relationships you talked about in the episode about ancient Rome and the, the pederasty and the relationships of having... Oh, it's gotten pederasty written all over it. An older man educating and taking care of and bringing in and having a relationship with a younger man being a thing in society that people are okay with. I mean, even being treated as a son-in-law. And the kids thing also really gets me. Where are the kids from? Who made the kids? Where'd you acquire these children? And what are you going to do with them after the 20 years? Like, this is fascinating. And everyone likes to be like, oh, ancient Greece were so open about sexuality. They just didn't care at all. They were so chill, which like, they weren't, okay? They, they believed that it was like not masculine to please a woman. So also people think that because later on in history, everyone just painted the Greeks naked so they could paint naked people. Yes. Can we talk about that, too? Just so you guys know, in, in the 16700s in Europe, the only way to get away with painting someone nude was to make it either a story in the Bible or a mythological story, which is why when you then get paintings of people who are like, I painted my mistress and hung it up in the Parisian art galleries, that's what people were scandalized by. The fact that it was a normal woman, not a naked body. Which is like why I think we imagine the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans walking around like tits out, just holding like a sheet instead of choosing to wear a dress, even while they're like frolicking through the fields and they're Dionysian cult. Like, uh -huh. Boy, oh boy. Um, this is fascinating, though. This it's so fascinating. And, and taking it even a step further, the term rabbit was used as a derogatory word for homosexual <gasps> men in China and Taiwan for 
decades. However, more and more people have begun taking back the word Mm -hmm. and will Mm -hmm. use rabbit as a representation of the queer community. It's – I was listening to the podcast If Books Could Kill, which is uh, fantastic, of course. And they were talking about how in our society, you know, people will have to experiment or figure out – like figure out what kind of queer they are. That's kind of like generally considered to be a thing, experimentation Mm -hmm. and testing and whatever. But we don't put that on heterosexuals ever. There's no. no like, let me just test it out and figure out if I'm straight. But th- having like this in effect is kind of interesting because a guy with money, right? It's always about money, but mm-hmm. presuming they have money, could just be like, mm, you know, I'm not really sure, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna literally fuck around and find out, <laughs> right? With some financial and economic benefits to go along with it. And crazy that they even care about the younger man's virginity at all. It's fascinating. And and there's an article titled, How Fujian Was Once an LGBT Mecca, where people worshipped a rabbit god, written by David Volotsko for The China Project. And in this article, the author writes that, quote, LGBTQ plus media remains censored. Beijing responded to Taiwan legalizing same-sex marriage last year by saying China will not follow suit. And this past August, the country's biggest LGBTQ plus festival, Shanghai Pride, was shut down without explanation. The Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law, which specializes in LGBTQ plus research, ranks China 101 out of 174 nations for LGBTQ plus tolerance. The U.S., meanwhile, ranks 21st, end quote. I'm surprised. U.S. ranks so high, honestly. I am too, which really opens up your eyes about what could be going on in China. By the way, friends, speaking about America, did everybody hear we're a developing nation now? Messed it up so bad. I mean, listen, that whole whole ranking system is another thing to discuss. But for anyone who cares about that kind of thing, I imagine that's quite a blow. Yeah. Yeah. And although if it's a blow, then you have not been paying attention. Yeah, it's interesting hearing about other countries' politics that are also bad. Yeah. And there's still work being done to gain rights for LGBTQ plus people in China and Taiwan. And the Weiming Temple or Rabbit Temple in New Taipei City in Taiwan is dedicated to servicing the queer community. According to Weiming, the temple is the only shrine in the world dedicated to LGBTQ plus individuals. And uh, the founder has stated that his intent in creating the shrine was to create a welcoming place for a demographic subject to ostracism. Temple founder Liu Weiming says it's a space for all people, especially those who wish to pray for love, comfort, and friendship. So I wanted to leave it on a kind of a, a more positive note that there is work being done. I love that. Yeah. I- Isn't that amazing? It's so interesting to me to think about fate and the queer community specifically because I I think that fate is such a useful tool kind of mm-hmm. spiritually, personally, r- religiously. I uh I actually wrote about this for later in the our in our script, but I'll just talk about it now. But because <laughs> yeah. I think it's so useful for the queer community in particular, because fate can be whatever you need it to be. And for queer people in a place where they're being oppressed or closeted mm-hmm. or whatever, 
the idea that you're fated to be with someone I think can be really uplifting and comforting. Uh, and it also allows you to make room for a relationship that might otherwise have to be closeted. And it it kind of opens up this literal thread of intimacy to talk about how you're meant to be together, even if you can't literally be together physically. Yeah. Um, and I love fate <laughs> so much as a mythological tool because – if, if a character is has something bad, they can say, oh, well, you know, it was fated to be. I couldn't have changed it. If they have mm -hmm. something good, it was their destiny and, and the gods love them and they deserved it. And if they overcame this challenge, you know, they fought against fate and it's just like this hurdle for them to get over and then show how amazing they are. And yeah. I think people – do that in their own lives like it depends on your belief system you can see how fate adapts and is adapted to be exactly what you need absolutely and and one of the things i love about fate stories and i think the reason that lgbtq plus people can really um find comfort or interest in these stories is if you're fated to be with someone then it means two things one inherently you are worth being loved mm -hmm. because there's someone good out there who's point. meant to love you. Good point. And it also means that there is nothing wrong with you because you were made the way you were specifically for someone else. There is a reason and there is a purpose for you being and feeling and thinking the way that you do and it is for love and it is for a connection to another person. Right. It's f specifically for the love that other people are saying mm -hmm. is the problem. God, you're that's so brilliant. Yes. Yeah, I, I also just – I love the idea of fate um, because it opens up so many possibilities. Like is this character fated to do something, become someone? Can the fate be avoided? Is fate the ultimate enemy of the story? Is their destiny tied to someone else? I mean when it's done right, it can create really dynamic and high-stakes storytelling. But when it's done poorly, it can just kind of feel like you're shoehorning it's something so into place. It's so brutal. I feel like it's this unwieldy like Mustang that you're trying to shoehorn into a stall. Like, ugh, it's so difficult to write with. Also, I will only speak for myself. If there's one thing folks should know about me, it's that fate, I'm like absolutely not under no circumstances. It doesn't apply to my regular day-to-day -day life as soon as romance is in play. And I mean like the romantic things about life, but especially like Eros, romantic love. It's mm -hmm. I'm here for fate. It was meant to be. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be fascinated. I'll be finding you in this life and the next life. And if someone's and you like, feel that way in story or in your own life, uh, I feel like I just like become the storyteller of my own romance. <laughs> Which, if someone's like, do you believe in multiple lives or like, do you believe in fate? I'm like, shut up. I'm writing a romance <laughs> for myself. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, shut I get that. Up. I'm trying oh, to indulge. That. <laughs> I I do think a lot uh, when I look around the, the people in my life about how everything had to happen perfectly mm -hmm. for those people mm -hmm. to be in my mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. for those people to be in my life and to stay in my life. And to me, that does feel in a lot of ways like fate. There's just some people in my life that I think frequently, you and I talk about this, that I'm like, I'm just so grateful mm -hmm. I, I get to love you and get to know you. You're someone I think of that. And think about it, what everything that had to come into play just for us to meet and then stay friends and then remain friends. Like, it's just, to me, when you start to get kind of sentimental about it, it feels like you can't help but think that fate's involved. 
And why not? This is one of those ones where I'm like, who's it hurting, really? And isn't it fun? Isn't it nice when we just keep it in in this beautiful little area of our lives and we're like, oh, it's fate. And it it also allows us as individuals to be a little bit larger than life. Mm -hmm. You know, I am bigger and grander than bills and work. (laughs) I am this, this being that is meant to love. Something out there cared enough to give me a path. Mm-hmm. Like that's really what it comes down to. The, as soon as you introduce fate, the idea behind that is there is something or someone guiding paths and it cares enough to do what may be best for you or maybe best for the broader story they're telling. Ooh, but- or you were powerful enough to kick their plan to the curb mm-hmm. and be with someone mm-hmm. else anyway. Yeah, and as soon as you introduce fate, you introduce a a an amount of power that someone must hold and someone else must contend with. And I don't want to spoil – well, spoiler alert. The next episode is going to be the three fates, uh, mm-hmm. the ancient Greek fates. Uh, originally, it was going to be in one episode. But you see what happened is that Tracy and I both really like to research – um, and I looked up from my computer and lost four hours to reading ancient text about the fates. W- 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 sometime between when you and I were texting and working on this, you know, remotely yesterday, and I don't know, a blink, four four hours mm-hmm. also passed for me. I looked up and I thought it was going to say it was six o'clock and it was 10 o'clock. That's cute because I did that and it was 2 a.m. Yeah, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, we we had originally intended for it to be kind of a dual episode talking about string and fate, but mm-hmm. Tracy and I really like research and writing, so it yeah. had to become two episodes. But the thing that we're going to talk about in the next episode that I, I guess, would like to kind of put in everyone's brain is the thing about fate is that it's bigger even than the gods, mm-hmm. and that is just. In, in increasingly delicious mythological. Yes. There's so few things that are bigger than the gods. And it's really fun when they have to contend with them. Yum, 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 yum. Yum. So the other thing that we've talked about, we've talked about how fate can be used in a lot of different ways. And so I had a little bit of fun going and looking at TV tropes. Tracy loves a trope. I love a trope. How do we think about this idea of connected people and and a faded couples in our modern media. And obviously the red string of fate is a very classic trope, even though as Rowan's pointed out, it doesn't need to be a literal red string. It could be a timer counting down. It could be in your story, the red ribbon that fell out of her hair was a little nod, I noticed. It was a nod, but I think the red string in that was the phrase that they said. That was their like connection yes. throughout the different moments. Yeah. So exactly. So um, that is a, a version of this you'll see, and it's a very classic. There is There are two people, and there is something connecting them, and they are fated to be together. The interesting thing that I think we see in a lot of more modern stories is Magitech, like installing things into people that tell them when they find their love. And oh, yeah. I think in particular, Black Mirror does a really great job playing with tech and fate that we is mm-hmm. specifically kind of this nod to the red string of fate 
I would recommend in particular because, you know, Black Mirror, all the episodes are standalone. Season three, episode four, which is San Junipero, it won a ton of awards, including an Mm -hmm. Emmy. And that explores people staying together forever after death in a kind of simulated dream that you get uploaded to. And then more on the nose with this, there's episode four of season four, and it's called Hang the DJ. uh, And it involves simulations where... 998 times out of a thousand, two people fight the system to be together. Oh, whoa. That's cool. So, yeah, those are great examples. Um, Another type of fate that you'll see in media is the idea of fate drives us together. And in this narrative, it's a specific variant of the meet cute, which obviously is just the, the fun, unique way that two characters in love will meet in a story. The big thing with fate drives us together compared to just we are fated to be together is that in this scenario, even if the characters aren't inclined to want to continue interacting, something will push them to do it. So I love the idea of two characters who maybe don't want to be around each other, but eventually are still forced. Again, that idea of there's something that I'm fascinated by in story is people trying their hardest to avoid the thing that is the ultimate conclusion. So trying really hard to avoid a person who you are going to end up with and and exploring all the ways you try to get out of it and still the world forces it to happen. I feel like the wizard and the rogue, Rosalind and Thea, have that fate drives us together moment of like, I don't want to be dealing with you. And it's the fate detail of it isn't specifically acknowledged because fate isn't uh, in the story that – on the podcast hasn't been a major theme that you right. ne- we needed to like hit on the head, but it is definitely a part of it. Absolutely. It's something we talked about because I would not describe Thea and Rosalind necessarily as enemies to like enemies to lovers kind of thing. Because I don't think of them necessarily as enemies, but they are adversaries. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all have that one person in our lives. You're not my enemy, but boy, do I wish you weren't here. Like <laughs> <laughs> Uh huh. God, I could talk about Thea and Rosalind forever. I love them. Uh, The last trope that I want to talk about is love before first sight. So in this trope, the character knows what their beloved looks like or maybe knows their full name or sometimes it could be both. But for one reason or another, the infatuated one has never seen the person they love in real life. They know that they'll meet someday, probably because destiny says so, uh, and they'll wait for their beloved to make an appearance. And traditionally, you can see the person that they love um, being seen in a dream or a premonition, or maybe it was foretold by a fortune teller, described by a third party, seen in a portrait or sculpture or drawing. But somehow, you love them before you see them. I loved you before I met you is like one of my absolute favorite romance things. It's so Good. It's so good. It's the thing that like drives me back to poetry and like beautiful lyrics and stuff. Oh my gosh. Truly, the aspiration is to have someone write, I love you before I met you, poetry about you. It's so beautiful. Oh my God. Just, ugh. Or, yeah, I love, I love, ugh. I have no words. Like that's how how scrambled I get with this of the idea of like, I've I've known you my whole life. I've loved you or I was created for the purpose of loving loving you. you. Yeah. Um, You know, it's so beautiful of like just feeling like your entire existence is revolved around the opportunity of experiencing another person. That's so beautiful. Yes. I feel like it goes hand in hand with the like you're the best thing I've ever done. 
Like, oh my God, yes. Oh, oh beautiful. I, now we're getting all sappy and romantic. Yeah, should we, should we cut to tell me something good? Should we just dive straight yeah. in from sappy romance into talking about I love good it. stuff? Let's do it. Tracy, tell me something good. All right. My something good is is very simple. Um, so yesterday I had some friends over because I've had furniture sitting in my house that needs to be put together. And Rowan, <laughs> you know that it is my least favorite. A dishwasher? A dishwasher? The dishwasher, we're making progress, people. I had my dishwasher delivered. They didn't install it. It was a whole thing. This was – I had a, a, a really small dining table and a couple chairs to put together and I just hate doing it and wouldn't do it. And my sweet friend Ryan texted me mm-hmm. and said, I know it's too late to ask for a Christmas gift, but do you have any furniture that needs to be put together? And the context of this is that Ryan uh, loves putting furniture together and Ryan and Lisa are two of my dearest friends and they are expecting a child soon. They're having a baby, which is great. But that means that they're scrambling to get all of their big house projects done before the baby's born. Yeah, I'm sure. So Ryan went from being able to do fun, small projects to having to do the really big, intense ones. So now my house gets to the place where he can do the fun, silly projects that aren't stressful and aren't hard and he can be very good at doing. Those two are truly saints for being up for furniture all the time. Oh, my God. They're saints. I mean, they're genuinely two of the greatest people I know. I spent the whole time talking to to Lisa. Well, I mean, talking to Lisa and Ryan. Like Ryan was with us for most of it, and then he went upstairs to work on something. I just kept coming back to being so grateful for having these people in my life and for getting to spend time with friends. You know, Jamie came over, and so all of us were just sitting and, and chatting. And, you know, I've known Lisa for – since high school forever. And so – to still have that deep connection. And I, I don't know. I just had this moment sitting there where I was like, I have a friend who is taking time out of his day to come build furniture for me. And he reached out and asked me to do it. And Ugh. his wife is one of my favorite people too. And she, even though she's very pregnant and uncomfortable all the time, still came over and spent the whole day hanging out, crocheting a baby blanket on the couch while we watched TV together. And talk. like, it was just one of those like days where I stepped back and took stock of my life and realized that even though when I'm, you know, feeling sad or emotional or whatever, I want to act like everything's hard or unfair or whatever, but my life is so full of such joy and love and wonderful people mm-hmm. that it just it really struck me yesterday. So my my something good is that I now have a wonderful little dining table set up and uh, I continue to just be so fortunate to have amazing people in my life. So that's my something good. And now, Rowan, it's your turn. It's the little things. It is. It's the little things. And it's the people. It's it's realizing that you've gotten to a point in your life where you've accumulated wonderful people around you. Yes. Yes, that has been kind of the theme of the last year in particular, at least for me. Yeah. So for my something good, this is like a shout out to friend of the pod, Spencer Stark, who is one of the best gift givers I think I've ever met. For Christmas, he gave me a City of Amasus Gorgon coin. Uh, It's a bronze coin that is, you know, from... Like an actual, not like a replica, modern, like like an actual coin? No, this this is an ancient city on the Black Sea that was part of the Hellenistic Kingdom of Pontus. That is amazing. And it has a gorgon 
on one side of it. It looks kind of like a floral wreath, actually. And it's crazy. It's from History Hoard, which I'd never heard of before. It comes with a certificate of authenticity. And for friends who are like, don't those go in a museum? Not all historical objects are museum grade. Uh, this company in particular, I read a lot about them since receiving this gift, but they get things from reputable dealers. and They are not museum quality, but they're quite beautiful. And this coin is – it has literally Medusa on one side it's of so it. It's so cool. And It's so cool. And he was very kind when he gave it to me. He was like, you know, you might not want to touch it. Like, it's ancient. They say, you know, don't pick it up with your bare hand. And I was like, excuse me. This is from ancient Greece. I will be touching it with my bare hands. This is my my thing now. And I have to – touch it. I honestly have to stop myself from like eating it. I'm so excited. Genuinely, my next question was, are you going to lick it? I haven't yet. (laughs) Why is that like a legitimate? I don't think I can justify why that's a legitimate question. (laughs) But it has uh, Medusa on one side and the goddess Nike on the other side. (gasps) That's so cool. Yeah. And it's all worn down from people buying stuff with it. That is – what a great gift. Shout out to Spencer Stark. Shout out to Spencer Stark. That is the most willing and fable gift. And, you know, yeah. I, he writes with me all the time. So I'm sure, honestly, he's the person who has to deal with us being insufferable at parties, I think. I'm going to give Spencer some credit here. Spencer's the one next to us at the party asking follow-up questions. It's true. He's, Spencer's the best. Um, he's so – I was going to say tolerant of it, but I think I, – I hope. I think he's genuinely interested when we go off. Or at the very least, he puts on a very good, pleased face about it. So the cool thing about this coin is it came with a little write-up. Again, from History Hoard with its certificate of authenticity. But (laughs) one of my favorite details, it says, These coins were struck under Mithrates VI, and their denomination is a tetrachacon, one-twelfth of a drachm. First of all, why are we dealing in twelfths? But that's interesting. Yeah. But it goes on to say that Mithrates was a ruthless leader and warlord, and he was also one of the most successful challengers of the Roman Republic, and he was obsessed with creating a universal antidote to all poisons. And as he got older, quote, he would attempt to fortify himself against poisoning attempts by ingesting sublethal amounts of poison. He's been credited as the first toxicologist because of his experiments. What a good gift. This is so cool. This thing's heavy, too. Oh, I bet. It's all solid metal. It it bears the weight of history. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I have been just counting down the seconds to tell you because you're my, you and Spencer are my friends that I could talk about this with. And he was out of the running because he gave it to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... That's fantastic. That's so cool. What would happen if um, – do, what do you think would happen if I tried to go out and spend it? I mean, they'd say no, but it would be funny. Yeah, but then, I, then I'd then i have to spend it. I know. It's it's You got to keep it proudly on display. It's got to what, – what people who are listening can't see is it's in a really cute, well-protected little case. Well, I mean, it's in my hands right now, but it's supposed to stay in the case according to their directions. <laughs> um, the thing that I can't figure out how to do – And maybe someone can give some good advice as I'm, like, trying to clean off my humanity from this coin Uh with uh this cloth. Because I didn't know you're not supposed to clean 
ancient coins. It's considered like you're removing the I mean, you're zhuzh. removing history. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know where to put this that I can shoehorn it into every conversation with anyone who comes to my home. That is tricky. That is tricky. It's small. So it's got to be in a prominent place. It's quite little. And I and it would require people to ask me about it potentially, you know, which also kind of messes that up. What you could do is make a little a little shrine to the coin. And so then people will come in and be like, hey, what? Yes. If people are like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, interestingly, not the thing with the coin, but I'm going to talk to you about the coin anyway. <laughs> We'll find a great way for you to just display it and make it the focal point of your entire home. So, friends, if you have any suggestions on how I can just be absolutely insufferable. <laughs> and suggestions for where to put the coin, please let us know. And uh, I think that about does us. Thank you all so much for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? thank you so much for joining us for the willing and fable podcast this episode was written and produced by tracy harrison and rowan hall that's me our logo is by jamie harrison and our music is by taylor ash if you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, Join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. On the plus side, your skin glowing. Thank you. Your lip gloss still holding up. I mean, it's the amazing stain you got me.